welcome to episode 17 of FemLonk. I'm your host, Katie Davey, and today we're talking about reproductive health care, specifically abortion access. This episode will be 100% unedited. We were supposed to be taking this week off, so I'm traveling without my laptop or recording tools, but it is because of my personal privilege that I had the choice to take a week off and travel. This is not a privilege that many folks are able to face right now in the United States. I could sit by and drink wine while the rights of women are being trampled on, but I've decided to record this episode again completely kind of off the cuff with no tools to edit, so I hope you'll indulge me in this unedited episode while I share my thoughts, opinions, and experiences on abortion access with you. First, this is a big topic. I could make like an entire podcast devoted to reproductive health care. Somebody should actually do that. If it exists, I would love for somebody to share it with me. Um, but I've only got about 30 minutes today. So I asked Femonk followers on Twitter and Instagram to let us know what they're interested most in hearing about. First, we asked if I should focus on international or the Canadian context. 79% said the Canadian context, so that is where we'll focus today. Second, we asked if you wanted to hear more about overall reproductive health or abortion access. This was 52.48 for reproductive health, so we're going to focus a bit on both. Um, Hopefully we can actually do a follow-up episode more on reproductive health care to dive into some of the things we don't get to talk about today. Third, we asked if you wanted a rant or experts. 71% said experts. But as I mentioned, I'm on vacation, so I'll be sharing with you my personal experiences in reproductive health policy, but I'll plan to follow up with an episode with other experts. Finally, I asked if you wanted to hear about legislation or lived experience. 57% said lived experience. So we're going to focus a little bit more on what barriers exist um, or will exist based on the legislative framework. So... Sorry for that pause there. I was just double checking that I actually said all of the things, which I did. Um, So why the heck do I have the authority to talk about abortion access? Well, first of all, I'm a woman, so I have a fundamental problem when my body autonomy is at risk. Secondly, while I worked in the New Brunswick Premier's office, I spent a lot of time, more time than you would probably think, working on abortion access and reproductive health care. I met with deputy ministers often on the topic, I met with tons of stakeholders, and I directly advised the chief of staff and the premier on this topic. And quite frankly, I just care deeply about it. So I hope this experience will add value to the dialogue, and I'll jump back into what this work looked like a little bit later. First, why abortion access and why now? So I actually planned to do a full set of episodes on women's health care, and we'll still likely do that. Um, but after recent events in the U.S., we thought it was critical to talk about abortion access now. So eight states have passed bills that restrict abortion access. Most recently, Alabama, which introduced legislation to ban all abortions after, quote unquote, a heartbeat is detected, which is around six weeks. That being said, that's actually not what the medical profession um, agrees on, and it's rather kind of 
not a heartbeat that you hear at that point, but kind of, I, I, I don't know, some sort of um, kind of biological functioning that is not a heartbeat, so I will add that in there. Um, an amendment was presented to include, sorry, to exclude cases of rape and incest, but that failed. So what does that actually mean? Well, shockingly, we also don't have great sexual education, so that is a great question. Being six weeks pregnant actually would just be the equivalent of being about two weeks late for your period, or less. Um, I actually use an app to track my period, which is not entirely regular. Um, I went back and checked kind of the last six cycles, and in April, my cycle was 43 days long, which beats it was six weeks long. So in short, I could have very easily been pregnant for six weeks and had no idea. And I'm not the exception. That is a common thing that happens for many women. Um, other states like Georgia and Ohio have also introduced similar bans. Uh, the good news, if we can find good news in any of this, is that these bans have not actually taken effect yet, and some really amazing advocacy groups are fighting to ensure that they never do. The reality is, though, at the Supreme Court level, not all of the justices are Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'll take a minute to remind folks of Brent Kavanaugh. Anyone remember that awful, awful, awful hearing? He is a member of the Supreme Court right now. So these bills will be fought in the courts. They'll cost probably millions of dollars to advocates and to states for that matter. And the reality is we really don't know what the outcome will be. So why the hell is this happening? Well, our pal Donald Trump certainly has not helped the case. Um, But the reality is twofold as I see it. One, conservative legislatures see their path forward to act on something that they may believe is the right thing to do. However, keep in mind that these folks tend to be older, whiter, and maler. But I actually think the real reason to this is that it really is an issue that rallies Republicans and the Republican base, and they need an issue leading up to the 2020 election. Uh, Abortion raises them tons of cash, and it ties up Democrats in defending themselves on the abortion file. Uh, It really is, I think, at the core of the Republican re-election strategy for Republicans all across the country. That literally makes me feel sick. Like, it makes me feel sick to think about that, to say it out loud, and again, to, like, realize that that is so fundamentally the case. Playing politics not only with fundamental human rights, but also with folks who are likely in one of the most vulnerable situations of their life is just unconscionable. I, yeah, it's unconscionable. But... I also just can't stand the hypocrisy of it all. Just today I was reading that the fifth child has died at the border in U.S. custody. Also completely unconscionable. Unconscionable. Um, But I'm pretty sure I haven't seen any of those so-called pro-life politicians condemning that. I also can't remember the last time an anti-choice politician was raging about the atrocious attack on black lives in the U.S., But of course, the reality is this abortion ban, these abortion bans are ways to control women and take away their power. 
it's a way to ensure that those in power stay in power and that if women die in the process, which they will if these bills become law, it's, it's not a big deal to these people. I actually saw a tweet today that resonated so much with me on this and, and in this lens, and it said, the reason these folks care more about a fetus than a woman is because a fetus might still be male. It just, like, I can't wrap my head around the fact that a woman's life, because that is what it is, these bills will not stop abortions All they will do is make abortions more dangerous for folks in their most vulnerable situation because if a woman has made that deeply personal decision that they are going to have an abortion, it won't matter if it's legal or not. They will find a way to do it and that will result in awful, awful things happening to women. And I just, I don't understand. I just don't understand anyways I, I it's it's hard not to get emotional talking about this um i saw a second tweet today actually um similarly that uh, was a man talking about his experience with a bisectomy uh he said it was covered by medicare nobody challenged him on it and he wasn't called a baby killer for getting it i think that's just such a compelling juxtaposition and i mean as we know it takes two to tango so when will we start actually talking about what the men's role here is or when will we talk about the actual tools necessary to decrease abortion if that is the goal which is what these legislatures legislators sorry say it is but we don't see these old white male legislatures legislators geez i can't get that word tonight sorry um introducing bills to universally cover birth control to increase sexual education Uh, to provide universal daycare, to dramatically improve the adoption system, or to dramatically improve the social assistance system. We don't see this. So how can they actually say they want to decrease abortion? They can't. So how on earth can we take these people seriously when they're trying to legislate women's bodies? We can't and we shouldn't, but what we can and should do is support the organizations working hard to fight these bills and to continue to speak up for our fundamental rights. I think though, we can't continue to be reactive. We keep being on our heels in these discussions, but we need to take back the conversation. Like progressives need to take back this conversation and not spend all of their time defending abortion access and defending women's and those who have the ability to bear children's fundamental bodily autonomy we can't keep being reactive and in the canadian context i actually think that that's really important leading up to the 2019 election it's not going to be enough for particular leaders to say that they won't reopen the abortion debate supporting reproductive health care should be an expectation not a question and you know canada has not always had a rosy relationship with abortion and I'll just highlight a brief history here so we're all on the same page. So technically, abortion in Canada is legal at all stages of pregnancy and is governed by the Canadian Health Act. Um, Some, actually many, depending on where you live, non-legal obstacles exist, uh, but Canada is one of the few nations with no legal restrictions on abortion. 
But again, regulations and accessibility can vary between provinces and even between locations within particular provinces. Um, so prior to 1969, all abortions in Canada were illegal. Uh, it was amendments to the criminal, uh, or sorry, it was the Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1968 and 69 that legalized abortion. Uh, basically, it decriminalized it, but it did provide for criteria, I guess, for folks to be able to access that. So a committee of doctors had to sign off that it was medically necessary for the mother to obtain this. Um, in 1988, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled in R.V. Morkenthaler that the existing laws were unconstitutional. And this is, I will remind folks, after the introduction of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So that, I think, is really important when we talk about this conversation. Um, so, so, yeah, so 1988, the amendments, sorry, in 1988, the 1969 amendments were deemed unconstitutional and struck down and therefore um, abortion access was essentially made uh, to be universal in Canada. So not surprisingly, provinces did not all immediately get on board with providing access to abortion after 1988. Um, And this is, I guess, loosely where you could say my, my experience starts to intersect with the conversation. So in 1988, Frank McKenna was the premier of New Brunswick, um, and he became, or sorry, he began the holdout on abortion access in New Brunswick that lasted all the way until 2014 when Brian Gallant was elected. Uh, For those keeping score, that means that six premiers of New Brunswick fought the Supreme Court of Canada ruling on abortion access, both liberal and conservative premiers. In 2004, actually, Dr. Henry Morgenthaler launched a judicial battle against New Brunswick specifically, seeking to have abortion recognized as a constitutional right under the Canadian Charter. Um, Essentially, the government dragged this court case out until Dr. Morgenthaler passed away. As I mentioned, every single premier, until Premier Glent, held out on this ruling. Um, But in 2014, Abortion access was actually a key issue of the electoral campaign uh, from both sides of the debate. Some folks will remember the absolutely terrible postcards that were being floated around and delivered all across the province with a falsified image of an aborted fetus to make the anti-choice argument. Um, And I actually had liberal candidates from that election tell me as recently as six months ago that in their particular riding during that election, um, they lost because because of these postcards or because abortion was on the ballot. I don't think it's that simple. It's it's not. But uh, I think it is really interesting that you have some candidates who honestly were, you know, younger progressive women, perhaps running in ridings that were not necessarily that um, that quote this issue and this topic um, and this time period in twenty fourteen as being why they were not successful. So I think that just goes to show that still in New Brunswick the conversation is a bit of a lightning rod and it's super unfortunate and I really wish we could actually move past talking about abortion access and that we could actually be talking about holistic uh honestly holistic 
reproductive access and health care um, and further, you know, women's health care and adequate health care for trans folks. I wish that the, this I wish that this was the conversation we were having. Um, but the reality is there's still a long way to go. Uh, so again, before 2014 in New Brunswick, the only abortion access was through a private Morgenthaler, the private Morgenthaler clinic located in Fredericton, which required um, a fee of about $600 because it wasn't covered by Medicare. Technically, you could get an abortion covered by Medicare at any of the hospitals in New Brunswick before that time, um, but you had to have two doctors deem it medically necessary. Uh, after Brian Glant was elected, a review of these regulations eliminated the requirement for two doctors to certify medically necessary of the procedure. Um, however, the regulation still requires that abortions be performed in hospitals. So right now, Moncton City and Bathurst are the two um, that you can kind of have universal access. However, again, any hospital can perform a medically necessary abortion, but medically necessary does literally nothing for choice. So there is still a gap. Um, there is no question. In New Brunswick, though, um, it, sorry, New Brunswick did, however, become the first province in Canada to offer Mifgai Miso free of charge in 2017, and that's the abortion pill. So, you know, two years later, there are still some provinces in Canada that still are not providing this as an option for uh, for folks across the province. This was actually a really unique experience to be involved in because in New Brunswick, we actually offered this before the uh, kind of federal committee, the federal, um, basically the, the Drug Price Review Board um, had finished their work. And that was, it was really hard actually to get it to move forward. But it was deemed as such an important move for us and such an important piece of access for folks all across the province, particularly in rural areas, that we, we tried to move as fast as we possibly could on this file. Um, and again, that allowed us to be the first province to do it. And one of the things I really learned working in provincial politics is that it is a lot easier for other provinces to follow suit on particularly things that are a bit more uh, politically charged, like uh, abortion access, um, when another province has done it already. So I think as soon as New Brunswick did this, a lot of other provinces followed along, and that's fantastic news. There are still some provinces, I know, namely Manitoba, um, that has not provided this universal access yet. And I think it is critically important to provide not only hopefully more access, but a different option for folks seeking this procedure. Um, again, I, as I mentioned just a few seconds ago, there are still challenges in New Brunswick on surgical abortion. Um, there is still the clinic in Fredericton operating um, and, and they're not covered by Medicare. Um, Again, it was really interesting working in this policy area, and I will say what I learned, I think, most working in this policy area was that um, civil servants do have a lot of power, I think is the right word. Um, and I say that because, as I mentioned just at the top of the episode, I had so many meetings, so many meetings on 
reproductive health care, on abortion access um, during my time in the premier's office, so many. And we asked so many times for different options on how we could improve surgical access. And I could not tell you how many barriers, how much pushback we faced. And I honestly believe that the folks giving us this advice really full-heartedly believed that those were real barriers and that those were real issues um, that they were assessing in improving abortion access. So one of them, again, so there there were two lenses. One, if we wanted to continue to go down the hospital route, um, very few hospitals actually had space to be converted into um, into essentially a, a spot where abortion access could be um, could be performed. So that was a big barrier uh, faced that particularly in the St. John area, um, but in other areas as well. The other element was that they they continued to cite uh, clinical competencies. And I assume probably, again, I'm, I'm not a doctor, I don't work in that space, but I assume, sure, that is an argument perhaps that you would make. And in cases like uh, areas in the north of the province where there would be, or there are, based on the data that exist, few reported um, surgical abortions, it would be difficult to create an entire surgical suite and doctor availability when there are so few that they would not be able to keep up their clinical competencies to perform the task. But I think there are easy solutions for that or easy workarounds, you know, whatever that looks like, but that was another argument. And then on the surge or on sorry, on the private clinic side, what I found to be so fascinating was that really New Brunswick doesn't have a model to provide services in private clinics. That is honestly what it came down to. Um, and what I continued to hear was that there are many procedures in the province uh, where private clinic folks are trying to get um, medically covered-ish. That is the high level. And and the, the New Brunswick government has never gone down that route um, and has no plans to go down that route and as such has no real um, framework for what that route looks like. Um, which, which again, is, is, that's true. That is, that's definitely true. So I thought that was an interesting, again, lens and an interesting piece to be advised on. Um, I do wholeheartedly believe that the folks providing the advice um, did believe and do believe wholeheartedly that, um, that that is the right advice. But I will say this abortion access is not your typical medical procedure. And I don't think that governments or civil servants should be thinking about it in that way. Um, that, that, that's all I'll say on kind of that personal experience. Um, also I apologize if you can hear a dog barking in the background. (laughs) Um, the other thing I'd like to chat a little bit about is overall reproductive care. So I think that one of the things that we don't talk enough about in this overall conversation around abortion access is the fundamental lack really of overall reproductive access and health care. 
Um, again, New Brunswick is an example where, for example, gynecological surgeries, surgery wait times is like through the roof. Um, and it's little things like that. And it's just, again, the ability to be able to get pap tests, for example, if you don't necessarily have a family doctor, which we know not everybody does in New Brunswick. Um, there's also, you know, midwifery that there's just one small clinic that has started in Fredericton. So I think what we really need, and, and honestly, at this point, we don't have the luxury of doing, but we need to be having a holistic conversation about reproductive health care and what that looks like and not just a conversation about abortion access. I think, again, it is fundamental. Safe and legal abortion access is fundamental. There is no question. But we, have, we just don't talk about women's women's health care broadly and reproductive health care broadly. And again, reproductive health care, that includes considering the unique health care that trans folks needs trans folks need and ensuring that we're creating the conditions for that as well like I just think that we need to be having better bigger and more inclusive dialogues on reproductive care and I just want so badly for us to not have to just continue to fight for our fundamental right of bodily autonomy so that we can actually be talking about how we can care for for women in a way that is again so accessible to their needs it just it boggles my mind again that we're not there but we're not and I really want to continue to have that conversation as well but I recognize that we're not in a place where we have that luxury I you know there's there's always that example of even just you know, we don't know how women experience heart attacks in the same way as men. Um, but I also was, again, reading something the other day, which said, you know, when you see, when you get the list of all of the things that pregnant women cannot take, um, it's actually not because that prescription or that pill or whatever will harm um, the pregnancy, but rather that we've actually just never tested it. So we, we have no idea. Because even just medical drug trials are still not necessarily geared towards how women will experience those um, those trials. So little things like that that we really need to be considering. Um, but also, it's just, again, like having this holistic conversation. But recognizing that right now it's, it's about ensuring that women... And it, and, more broadly than women, folks that are able to to bear children or menstruate, uh, maybe is a better way of putting it, um, across the world have fundamental access to their bodily autonomy. I think that is fundamental, and again, we can't lose sight of that, and and I don't think we are. Um, I just want to actually cycle back to to what this looks like and what this means across the country in Canada. Um, and leading up to the federal election. One of the things, again, that, that I learned in my work in New Brunswick on this topic was that, you know, we talk about legislation, and yeah, legislation is super important, and, you know, you can make major fundamental changes with legislation, but most of the work around access, um, and actually just broadly a lot of the work, um, has nothing to do with legislation. So when I mentioned MIFGAI-MISO, the abortion pill, 
not never once did we amend a piece of legislation to make that happen. So literally, if if for example, Blaine Higgs, the conservative premier of New Brunswick, woke up tomorrow morning and was like, meh, not really interested in covering this uh, abortion pill for women in New Brunswick. They could change the regulation basically that simple. Just quick agreement of cabinet and the regulation has changed. So I actually think that when we talk about this and we talk about this conversation and what it could look like in Canada and what it could mean leading up to the federal election and, and what it means with you know, um, conservative governments being elected all across the country, it's, it's not letting our foot off the gas because these regulations can change under our noses and we honestly would have no way of knowing. The only way we know is when you know, a person is in a vulnerable situation, they go to access this service and they can't. Um, actually, a, a, a perfect example of this, uh, just I think last week um, in Ontario, it was discovered that the Ford government has changed the regulations on um, on gender confirming surgeries and doctors now have canceled their consultations widely because they've quote unquote reached their quotas for that year. Um, so people who again were relying on this service for their fundamental bodily autonomy really fund or their fundamental confirmation of of who they are as a person are now just being told like nope Doug Ford decided that this doctor has has reached their quota so it's these types of things that have fundamental impacts on folks that have nothing to do with legislation. So I think we need to keep supporting the advocates working on these files because it's not easy. Um, So we need to support organizations working on these files. Uh, We need to not let our foot off the gas, uh, but we need to start trying to control the conversation as well. We need to stop being reactive um, because again, you know, these conversations aren't gonna be battled out on the floor of the legislature. They're gonna happen in the back room of cabinet with the doors closed and we're not going to find out about them so we need to be supporting the folks doing the work all across the country and whatever that support looks like whether it's you know creating these movements on social media whether it's donating these organizations um, or whether it's you know helping to provide self-care for the folks that are doing this work we've got to continue to move forward and we have to remember that it's not always legislative and and it's not easy, but if we continue to just react when these things happen, we're not going to be able to move forward. And, you know, it's a hostile political climate right now. These are the things that I think we really should be considering and talking about. Okay, I know I said right off the top that folks wanted to hear from experts more than rants. I think this turned into a bit more of a rant, um, but I hope that I hope that this episode adds value to the conversation on abortion access. I do think that it is fundamental that we continue to have this conversation in Canada. Um, And I think that we shouldn't discount what's going on in the United States. Um, My biggest takeaway is, you know, women's bodies are under attack. We can't let our foot off the gas. We've got to support people doing the work. And we've got to be proactive rather than reactive. I think that these are conversations that are so important and fundamental 
and I look forward to continue to having them. I, again, will thank folks for indulging me and and providing this kind of unedited episode. Um, I hope it's still okay, and I would love to hear some feedback on what folks would be interested in hearing about in a follow-up episode on both abortion access in Canada and broadly women's health care and reproductive health care. Other than that, I'd say stick around, follow us on social media, give us a rating and subscribe to the podcast to continue to follow along with this dialogue. And like I said, let us know what you're interested in hearing next on this topic. Thank you so much for sticking around.